I basically just grabbed the steering wheel and sat there until it stopped rolling. And uh, I I unhooked the seat belt. I, I was uh, uh, laying on the side. I unhooked the seat, took the steering wheel off the boat, unhooked the seat belt, fell to the <laughs> ground. And the funniest thing I think it's ever I've ever heard is <laughs> by that time my recovery truck had shown up and got there. And this one old boy is with us. He don't go out there with us every year. And the first thing he said, he's alive. <laughs> that made you feel good. <laughs> but he was so excited that I was alive. I'm thinking, it wasn't that bad. <laughs> Welcome to Oil and Whiskey, an Ironclad Original. I am Josh Henning. I'm Phil Gerber. I'm Jeremy Gerber. Welcome to Oil and Whiskey, an Ironclad Original, presented by Blade HQ. Just go to bladehq.com slash oil and whiskey to shop their selection of knives. I may or may not have shopped their selection of knives and purchased something as a surprise. It's for me. It's it's very I, I once again... Looked at some clippers. Filled the shopping cart. And didn't bring And anything. I just didn't bring it home. I got busy. I'm waiting for Black Friday sales. Yeah. But I got something coming. Late night last night. Couldn't sleep so good. Thumbing around the old uh, Instagram. And something was dropped. Uh-oh. And I was able to secure it. Uh-oh. So via my, via my wife's PayPal, which I don't know how to use. And it was the only way to pay. So I like woke her up. She was all disoriented. I'm like, check your phone. Is there like a PayPal thing or something on there? Send it to me. On pins and needles. Next week, boys. I guess I need to buy something now. I get shit that I bought something and didn't tell us. And then both. Oh, I'm telling you guys about shit. it. All right. That's word. Yeah, we're openly upfront about stuff. Right. This is this you is do like things in private. Right. This, is, very, like, this is like a team. Yeah. Right. We're in, it's like a we're in a circle. Right. We're all in the circle. Circular up yeah. and down in and around around. Well, is good, block bad. Speaking of pins and needles, I've been on pins and needles for this episode for quite some time. Today's guest is George Boutique. Period. Yeah. Hard stop. Enough said. Nothing else to be said. Because we would just do it injustice anyway. If you don't know who George Boutique is, then you're not worth knowing. I don't know why you're listening <laughs> to this podcast anyway. Uh, we also have another edition of Roadster Shop Hall of Fame. But first, it's time for... On, on the, the gas, gas, on the, the gas. gas. Oh, wow. <laughs> Just get better yep. and better. You got it on the gas, new on the gas. Who do we have on the gas this week, fellas? I, somebody's going to get a <laughs> kick out of this because I know somebody that works here that, that, that listens. Quite the fan. Sends Really? There's a few texts, and uh, you've been on those email chains. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What do we got? You got all the insider information. We'll let you drop it this We've time. We've got Dakota Digital. Ooh. Talk about somebody that's on the gas. Damn. Yep. They've been on the gas for quite some time. Uh, kind of changed the game in the gauge world. Made our lives a lot easier and took a lot of the guesswork out of uh, what gauge package is going in a car. They've and taken it to the red line. Oh, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't like, I don't like yeah. that. I don't think I like that. They max the RPMs out. Yeah. That's just, 
Really? You they do like a them. great job. Their cages. <laughs> I mean, they make us look great. They make all these builders look great. It's like the, such a great addition to the interior of the car. It really gives you such an awesome like OEM level experience in there the back lighting the function the digital displays the old obs old justin's ability to uh cater to all of our designs and needs i bet everybody there hates justin how many like special favors or hates us yeah that as too. a result of and at this point he's like he's kind of told us we just there's like a favor yep we get one or use two it left. when you really need yep. it because yeah you get one favor every 12 months right you've used your favor <laughs> but phenomenal product great I mean, great tech support, but you really don't need the tech support because the stuff just, it's plug and play, works so well. You see it in, I mean, virtually every top build that's out there. Um, always recognizable. Little teaser here for SEMA. We'll be dropping a new product. Product? Yeah, they're dead on kind of with the trends or even ahead of the trends. I mean, at first they had the HDX series gauges out um, and then the, like, kind of the carbon fiber look to them. Um, then came out with the uh, the recent RTX gauges and the kind of whole industry has changed to that yes. more refined original. You know, you want something that looks period correct in the car, but wants all the modern functionality. And I don't think you could design a better gauge if you if no, we tried. And all that stuff is cool. But you know what the greatest part is? What's that? They work. Yeah. You can that's nice. You can see the uh see the gauges doing the gauge thing. A, it's a important badass stuff, looking man. gauge that doesn't tell you what that gauge is supposed to tell you isn't a gauge. It's just a it's an, it's an image. <laughs> it's just an image. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They all, they great guys over there. Known them for years. They was pretty uh, amazing. A few years ago when we were there on the road tour to see that operation and facility in firsthand. I, I figured out one thing that I can gripe about though with them. Okay. So they've made the gauges, the correct, the progression of those gauges from the, what did they start off? VHX, VHX, HDX, RTX. Yep. We started that, our Survivor Camaro. It was with the original. That was the only one that was out there. It was at first the VHX. VHX, yeah. And then we put probably 15,000 miles on that car. And then they came out with the next gauges. Yep. And we put them in because they look really good. And I think we put probably another 5,000 miles on it. Then we sold it. Yep. To Dave. Dave. And then Dave, Dave wanted the RTX gauges. So then we put those in it. And then Dave put probably another 20,000. So I don't know how many miles are on the car. It, we need to be able to transfer the mileage. Can you transfer the mileage? I think that you could send it into them and they'll do really? it. Because now that's like a badge of honor. You know, it used yeah. to be like, you want to see that mileage. Hey, just want to roll it back. Now you want to. I'm sure they could take care of it. <laughs> roll it forward. <laughs> well, great. give him a shout. Great on the gas for this week. Dakota Digital. Check them out. Use them in your next build. Yeah, they're constantly coming out with new applications. They've got just about everything you would consider building. They do a lot of custom one-off stuff, and they're always coming up with new gauges to fill those voids. They yeah. got any of the, uh, they're doing like a cluster for the Miata with the tack rolled so that the red lights kind of. I'm sure they could do one, down. a custom one. Hmm. Nice. Yeah. You really that might be what's a, that might be what's dash mounted for that, don't you? I'd want a dash no, mounted you, that's uh, the tire you, pressure gauge. You roll the the gauge, you know, like you see the whole portion. It's all your needles are guys. Going up. Yeah, yeah. I just that's didn't a know. secret of the pros. Well, yeah, that's also a Porsche. I mean, yeah, it's a what's little. The, what's it's the pulling, It's pulling a little bit higher G's oh, than sports cars. So, gotcha. Uh, you know, your eye level. Gotcha. You don't have time to really 
down okay. needs to kind of be or a heads up display yeah or maybe just like top of the windshield mounted oh, that would work no one's done that yet yeah. innovator <laughs> you are those are two things you've never heard in the same <laughs> sentence that was miata <laughs> and innovator oh dakota digital <laughs> miata racing i'm thinking with all of the people we've talked to i'm gonna have the sickest miata ever built you think I don't, so? Yeah. I don't doubt it. I mean, you got a lot of resources. I think a lot of people would like to be a part of a Miata build at this point. Tom Nelson's doing the motor. You got Kibby Tech doing some long travel suspension for it. Oh. Dakota gauges. That's that's the, Maybe the direction we'll get, you're uh, going. A little Baja Miata, huh? Yeah. It's the off-roadster. What do you do? Like 29s on that thing? I think they're like, yeah, uh, like 26, 23s before. Yeah. Well, 29 if you can get you get, can you get knobby like all terrain tires. I guess you could take like ATV, ATV tires. or wheelbarrow tires. Yeah, wheelbarrow oh. tires. <laughs> Some of those tensors from the razor or whatever. Yep. Be, be sweet. If we just reskin a razor with Miata body panels. What if you become an enthusiast on something cooler and we just completely forget the Miata? I like the forgetting the Miata idea. Let's let's do that. But what are you going to be as passionate about? Whew, it's really anything at this point. Um, <laughs> whatever I can be passionate enough to not get text, phone calls, tags of Miatas. That wouldn't be any fun. It's uh, I learned like a few new features with Facebook Messenger and Instagram. You got to check your like pending messages from people that. Maybe you don't follow or you're not currently you friends with. good ones? Because they're like always floating in there and it's always something Miata related. Somebody somewhere has reached out to just simply say, we're, Bill likes Miatas, we're exclamation laughing. point. We're laughing. You know what's going to happen. This We're going to lose Phil. There's going to be a spinoff podcast and it's just going to be Phil, Miata enthusiast. Men with Mazdas. <laughs> They could bring the MPV guys in there, the Mazda MPV. Yeah, that's a solid vehicle. I can get that's by a, an MPV. That's a stretch of I a fuck name. With, I fuck <laughs> with an MPV. <laughs> okay, here's one for you. Who would win in a fight, the Miata fans or the Florida Georgia Line fans? It never comes to fisticuff. <laughs> that's a, that's some high-pitched screaming and yelling. There's a chest which, bump. Which quickly turns into the Miata guys diffusing the situation and finding an alternate method of they become friends at the yeah, end. Some sort of agreement of like, we can respect your music taste. We don't necessarily agree with them, but I tell you, I bet you there's some Miata drivers that rock out to some Florida Georgia line. Maybe not racing Miata enthusiasts, but just a guy that likes that owns a Miata. Well, spirited driving on the weekends. The British racing green. I don't know. I don't know if there's a lot of bro country in that. I think Florida Georgia Line crosses US... all boundaries. It's just a, it's just music. Okay. You ask all your friends. I'll ask mine. We'll see. We'll get together. Crowd. <laughs> so George Poteet is a name that if you've been in this industry long enough, he comes up in just about every circle, every builder, racing, show cars, hot rods, muscle cars, everything. Um, We've had the pleasure of getting to know him quite well over the last uh, five or six years. Um, great guy. 
the stories he has are endless. He's the records that he holds with land speed racing. And I mean, I saw an interesting stat today too. We'll talk about it. It's, there's 12, 12 men have been on the moon and there's been exactly 12 men drive over 400 miles an hour. Hmm. It's pretty crazy. But George also has been over 400 miles an hour more than all of the other guys combined. I think, right? Um, He's the world's fastest. World's fastest piston-powered, engine-driven man. Yeah, piston-powered, engine-driven, wheel-driven, something like that. Fastest shit. Um, <laughs> but uh, then the cars that he has ha- that he has built and the shops that he has, I mean on the map because of those it's it's endless there's always there's always a story about it you know george here george there something um and the things he does behind the scenes that nobody ever even knows about makes him even a greater man and a legend i don't use the word legend loosely and i think we can all agree that that is he is a legend 100 percent. Yeah. done some absolutely incredible things for this entire industry and you know there's Nobody else I can even think of to put no. in the same ballpark as as what he's done for the car industry, for the hot rod industry. Um, just, yeah, phenomenal guy. Been involved in an insane number. of The coolest of the cool projects. All aspects of it, um, traditional hot rods, show cars, muscle cars, pro touring stuff, land speed stuff, just road tour cars. An honest guy. And yep. he's, yeah, he'll tell you if something's ugly. Or not. <laughs> yep. George, take us back to the beginning where this uh where your love of cars and uh kind of the history of how all this got started. I don't know if I can remember that far back or not. <laughs> <clears throat> uh, I was raised in the country from in northeast Mississippi where you had to work on cars if you wanted to have one. Uh I was raised riding horses and bicycles and tractors, and uh, we had an old 53 Dodge. It, it had to be worked on regularly to keep it uh, running, uh, get my mother to work. So uh, in 1962, uh, 63, uh, when I really started driving, I, I'm born in 48, so I, I'm 15 years old in 63. But uh, I was driving tractors and uh, equipment when I was probably 12 years old. But we, uh, I learned to deal with cars from a necessity, not, not as a choice. <laughs> Didn't have any choice but to get it running if you had to get someplace, I guess. So uh, you're working on cars, you're doing that. What was your first job? My first job? <laughs> I guess feeding hogs and and uh, cows. Uh, uh, we had a small uh, farm that uh, we raised pigs and cows on, and I guess the first job was uh, working on the farm. I, I I guess my real first commercial job was uh, I worked in a newspaper office uh, that uh, around. Cut and die press, or you cut the cardboard, it goes under the collars or shirts. But that was a summer job. Uh, the real first real job I had was at uh, Pennsylvania Tire and Rubber Company in 
and Tupelo building tires. What year was that? Uh, that would have been uh, 1966. But they had probably a little different work standards and a little different OSHA involvement back in 66 at the tire plant than they do now. <laughs> well, it was, uh, I was 18 years old. The love for cars, George, did that start? Was there something that triggered you on that old Dodge pickup truck or when did that set in? Well, uh, probably the biggest influence I had on me was Hot Rod Magazine. And of course, back then you had the, the uh, beach movies going on and there were hot rods in all of them. Uh, the muscle cars really weren't uh, that big back then from where I came from. I, I never saw a Hemi uh, engine in a car until uh, probably 1970. <laughs> Uh, the people where I came from didn't have the money to buy things like that. But uh, we got Hot Rod Magazine and uh, and Library of the School. And then, uh, of course, you could, you know, watch Sandra D and Elvis and everybody uh, on the movie screen. It's usually some sort of hot rod there. But uh, that's really, you know, what started the uh, uh, big craze for me and wanting a hot rod. and. Well, I guess the, the biggest influence would have been American Graffiti and a 32 Ford. Everybody wanted a 32 Ford after that movie. And uh, when I was growing up, uh, 14 years old, there was a, a guy that father owned a, a gas station there in Mantachi where I was raised. At, I don't know, 32 5 went to Coop. I don't know, garage with a dirt floor on it. And uh, I'd go by there after school in the afternoons and watch him work on that thing. And I never saw it move under its own power though <laughs> in three years. Sounds like one of my projects. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh we uh we we watched movies and magazines mainly was the biggest influence we had. And you know, Hot Rod magazine was the biggest influence I ever had the cars uh, including the vulnerable racing. Uh you know, you read about it, NASCAR, Bonneville, uh, drag racing. Uh, uh, you know, I grew up uh, even before the, the the lights came into drag racing. They, you know, they flagged cars with, with checkered flags. So when I first started uh, being able to go to a drag strip, and uh, we had a, a small drag strip close to where I live, uh, I never attended a NASCAR race probably until I was, 30 years old. I never had the money to go to one, but uh, we read about them. Uh, you didn't watch a lot of TV about them back then. Nothing was covered under, unless it wasn't under the wide world of sports. You didn't see it uh, on television, but uh, uh, the biggest thing, you know, was Hot Rod Magazine, which I still look at today. What was the first hot rod or muscle car, something that actually you thought was fast what was the first one you got that i've ever i called fast yeah well the yeah first <laughs> hot rod or, or or fast car that you were able to buy well uh i when i was in high school my mother had a 58 ford with a uh, 352 police interceptor in it and that was kind of the the beginning of my 
like the Fords. It was a pretty fast car. It was a cruisomatic transmission in it. It didn't have four speed, but uh, the first real car that I would consider fast was a 66 Mustang that I bought when I graduated my high school, uh, a little 289 four speed car that I bought by working to get the tire factory. What color car was that? Uh, it was navy blue with a uh, two-tone blue interior. It had standard interior. It didn't have a pony interior. And uh, it, uh, I ran it with two fours, three deuces. <laughs> we cha- I changed intake back then like you'd, you'd, you'd change wheels and tires on a car now. <laughs> what was the first hot rod? Uh, 32 Ford or which one? What, what was it that you bought? In 1980, I bought a 37 Ford Coupe uh, at the Street Rod Nationals. When uh, the high temperature that week at the Street Rod Nationals was around 118 degrees, and I walked the fairgrounds looking for something to buy that I could afford. I found a 37 Ford Coupe that was uh, a dream car, other than it was a horrible car <laughs> 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 for you guys you can't understand what it is to drive a car with a four air front end on it. <laughs> no I've, I've never had the privilege <laughs> of driving one with a corvair <laughs> it had a corvair front end under a small block forward engine in it and uh quite the combination uh, it, little, <laughs> it wasn't chopped or anything but uh, the Corvair front end back then was uh, really the cutting edge of an independent suspension you can get if you didn't have the money to buy a Jaguar or something front end to go under. But uh, uh, when you were driving down the road going across bridges, it was going to go one way or the other. You didn't know which way it was going to go. <laughs> but, Start in the middle. But it was it was going to move to the other lane to the right or the left one. <laughs> but uh, we still... I uh, even, uh, uh, not the rack and pinion cars, but, you know, a traditional 32 Ford now, we still use a version of, you know, Chevrolet, uh, uh, steering box on them, but, uh, man, it was hard to, to keep them from, from darting side to side when, when you welded the front end in with a, a stick welder <laughs> and tried to get it square with a, a yard stick, <laughs> not a tape measure, but a yard stick. <laughs> In in 1987, you bought that. Was that in Louisville at that time, or was that in Oklahoma? That was in 1980 in Memphis. Oh, Memphis. Yeah. So, so you drove it when you bought it. You drove it back home. Well, I lived there in Memphis, and I'd moved up there, and uh, I guess I moved up there in '72 in Memphis, and uh, I had I moved to Memphis in a '64 El Camino with it small block and a four speed in it that I'd, I'd built. But uh, that was the first, what we call street rod I had back then. And, and like I say, back then, you know, you muzzle cars like your uh, Chevelles and uh, El Caminos and things. They, I, I don't know why we never called them muscle cars back then. Even you, you know, your big block Chevelles, we didn't call muscle cars. I never heard a Mustang called a muscle car back then, but uh, I bought that that uh, 37 Ford is what was really a hot rod back then, where 
you know, we'd had the, the California influence where, you know, people drove from California to Memphis to the Street Rod Nationals in their pre pre forty eight cars. And back then, you know, a real car show like that, it, it had to be forty eight or earlier. Even places like you know the Grand National Roker Show, you didn't see anything you know nearer than uh, forty eight cars. But uh, the uh, a dream back then was to own a thirty two Ford. And I drove that old 37 for uh, two years. And I managed to trade uh, with a guy in Atlanta, Georgia for a 28 Roadster. And although it wasn't a 32, it had a 32 chassis on it. <laughs> but it was during the, the Jimmy Carter days when uh, gasoline was uh, sky high back then. We were probably paying about $2.50 a gallon for it back then. And we couldn't afford it. But had a little Chevrolet uh, uh, uneven fire V6 in it, no no top for it, no windows for it. Uh, the body was so bad uh, when it was built. I didn't build it, but the body was so bad when I traded for it that it was welded to the frame. It wouldn't bolt it to the frame, but it, uh, it was a nice 32 frame with split wishbone front. It had the A model. Uh, spring on the back, had a Halibrand quick change under it, and a little V6, and I probably put uh, 40,000 miles on that car. <laughs> and back then, we didn't have to have air conditioning, tilt, steering wheel, and all that stuff on the car, but uh, that was the first, what I considered, real hot rod that I owned, uh, uh, that was on that deuce frame. It was just missing two cylinders. Two <laughs> cylinders out. two cylinders short of being a hot rod though, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, that was that was right during the time that <clears throat> everything had had shifted down from the boss four twenty nine to a Mustang uh two uh Pinto and you know, even after the uh the Corvair front end were used, we used Pinto front ends on the car for years. Uh, we called them Mavericks, but they were basically a Pinto front end. But uh, uh, we'd really never, I, I never saw a big block car until I moved to Memphis in 1970, really. I, uh, I never owned a big block car until oh, hell, in the mid 80s. Uh, but uh, uh, we go to the drag strip, you know, you see 327 Chevrolet Camaros and things running in, in 67, 68, and 69. And uh, the probably the, the most memorable car I ever remember was a 428 Super Cobra Jet uh, Mustang coming to the drag strip in uh, mid-68. They were, they were 68 and a half cars all, but uh, there was a car dealership in Starkville, Mississippi that that uh, came up to Fulton to the Dragon Strip with uh, that 428 car on the back of a car hauler. And I'm thinking, how in the world could you ever do that? I mean, you read about cars like that and you saw pictures of them, but to be able to stand there and watch it and listen to it run and and uh, just see the excitement from everybody around the, the whole uh, drag strip there was just, you know, was, that was an experience for me. Fast forward to uh, the first car that you paid 
somebody to build from scratch when after you've gotten successful and instead of buying cars or building them yourself that had to be as many of them as you were building and working on that had to be quite the transition to hand over a large sum of money to somebody to build a car from scratch who was that first builder don pilkington over at don's hot rods and uh uh ohio up at dayton ohio uh I met him at the Street Rod Nationals in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, and uh, somewhere around 1985, 86, something like that. And uh, I actually bought a car from him, a 37 Ford Woody that he had built. Uh, he built it to sell. And uh, I was uh, very impressed with, with what he was building. He, he built some really nice 30. 34 Ford coupes, uh, all steel cars. And uh, he he built one really nice 34 three-winded coupe. Sold it to Bob Reed probably in 85, 86. Uh, Donnie was down here six months ago. He got that car back from Bob. He's got it in his garage now. And it's still black, still got the original lacquer paint on it. But I had Donnie build uh, a... Uh, uh, 34 Woody was the first car that, that I really paid to have done. And uh, how it was a lot of money to build a car back then, but uh, the total amount wasn't anywhere close to what you have to spend on a nice car today. Donnie built the car while he had a full-time job uh, working at Brookwell Roadster. And he built it in, in his backyard in the garage. And uh, he... I was his first paying customer, and uh, he went on and I done it. I run five or six Riddler cars. He built me a, a Riddler car. He built me a Grand National Roadster Show car, uh, and he he built me probably four of the the nicest street rides I've ever owned from a a, a show standpoint. I, I, I didn't drive his cars a whole lot because they were all straight axle cars and, you know, springs and uh, wishbones and things like that. We, we didn't drive cars like we did today, like you guys build now. You didn't think about getting out of a car and drive it, you know, 3,000 miles. We didn't we didn't think about getting in a car and driving it 200 miles every weekend to a local car show. But we didn't hardly drive cars back then cross country until Hot Rod started doing the uh, power tour. And uh, that was really what kicked off this, this touring thing that y'all make y'all's living doing now, the Hot Rod Power Tour. And back then, Rod and Custom Magazine had a cross-country tour. Street Rider Magazine had a cross-country tour. So, you know, we, we morphed from uh, Hot Rods that go to the local drag strip on Saturday night and watch the races and, you know, occasionally race your car to Drake Strip to, to uh, getting out of a car and driving it across country like y'all have done many times. And I, I bet you couldn't even count the number of cars that you've had drive across country. Yeah, at this no. point, no, we can't. They just, they just roll sometimes <laughs> and we don't even know it. They're, they're yeah. cruising all over. <laughs> Well, what y'all done, uh, you know, you revolutionized um, hot rods, hot rodding, street rods, muscle cars. And 
I would say that 99% of the trends that that we have today and you know, were a direct uh, result of what y'all what y'all done in the last 15 years. And uh, you know, if you look at it, you really hadn't been around a, a long time when you compare yourself to people like Pete and Jake's uh, and uh, you know the Deuce Factory and and even even the the company that you had before you you you're what you are today the roaster shop you know we we bought roaster shop chassis for years but they were all 32 fords with you know straight axles and and uh wishbones and uh radius rods and four bars you know i, I live through the four bar craze <laughs> i've owned several cars with four bars on them but uh what y'all have done is i i don't think that it will ever be equal in, in the car industry. I just can't see, you know, one thing with, you know, with the, the electric cars and computers we have today, I, I don't think we'll have the material to work with to build what we have in the last uh, 30, 40 years. But what y'all done is, you know, starting from scratch with things like, you know, your your front end, your A-arms, your rack and pinion steering, things like that. It, uh, uh, I don't think that we'll ever see uh the uh phenomenon of what what y'all have, have done up there and i really don't understand my own uh kids like jeremy and, and uh, uh phil uh grasping the uh nostalgia that we that we get out of y'all and and still embracing the new and modern stuff and uh, you know, I know your dad had a lot to do with, with you alls success, you know, but I think probably the best thing he did for you alls success is back up and leave you alone. Yeah. <laughs> wow. And this is supposed to be about you, George. And I mean, <laughs> now, I, I do, I will say that he, I wasn't lumped in as a kid because I think that I've <laughs> that's got the gray beard. It's yeah. the gray part. Uh, to throw it back at you, though, um, I don't think anybody <clears throat> will ever realize because you're so mild mannered and there's so many things you've done behind the scenes that you absolutely will not ever want credit for. Um, I don't think anybody ever realizes that the industry is where it's at today because of you um, and how many shops that you've given. Like you said, you were their first paying customer. I'm sure you can't count how many shops you were their first paying customer talking about us building chassis um talk a little bit about that of how you seek out a shop and when you think that they're ready or they're the right shop for you well the uh, uh first thing that i you know would evaluate with a shop would be uh the owner you know, what kind of lifestyle they have, you know, if, if they're uh, similar to what I believe in and, you know, tradition and, and uh, some authenticity and some uh, creativity in it. Uh, but uh, I've been very fortunate to uh, uh, be able to, to pick some winners in this industry from Don, Don Pilkington to Dave Lane, Troy Tepranier, 
uh, I was all three of those guys first paying customers. Uh, you know, Alan Johnson uh, painted the vehicle for me back when he was 17 years old. And uh, I owned part of a business that had to work people and kids. And, and uh, you pretty quickly learn how to evaluate a guy's character, his skills, and his uh, 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 sincerity in what he's doing. Uh, and then, you know, you, you have to look at the, the shop that they work out of. Uh, I've never really built a car that was built in a real big shop, uh, you know, like Boyd. I, I never had a car out there, you know, mainly for reason it was too far from me out there. <clears throat> but, uh, and then, but you, you take these kids, uh, young guys just starting out like Alan, you know, like Dave Lane, you know, they're willing to try anything they're willing to give you what you want and they're willing to, they have the skill and the ability to steer you in the right direction. You know, whether you want to put pink interior in our car or not, they're able to convince you that it ain't going to work. <laughs> but uh, when I start a car with a, a, a shop like that, I, you know, I have a list of things I, I want done to the car and what I uh, uh, like to have from a preacher's comfort standpoint and what I want from an aesthetic standpoint and uh, what kind of quality that I want. And I build different quality cars when I'm, I'm building, and, and I know when I start a project, you know, what, what we're going to end up with, whether it's a regular car or an everyday driver. but uh, uh, I've been fortunate enough to pick out, you know, the, the shops that, uh, could, uh, execute what I wanted. And, uh, that is, has really gotten easier over the years because of technology, metal technology and, uh, parts availability, you know, uh, that's a big thing. Like, you know, pick up the phone call road shop and get a chassis to start with it. But, uh, you know, used to, you go to the junkyard and get a Corvair front end to start with and take it to a guy and say, I want this front end put under this car. But, uh, the, uh, I, it's a character assessment, I guess. And, uh, we, uh, uh I visit a, a shop no more than three times before we, we work a deal out, you know, Dave Lane, uh, he and I worked the deal out sitting on a, under a shade tree to street rod national. The first car he built for me, we were parked next to one another up in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, Troy and I met, uh, at the, uh, Detroit Autorama where he had a car going for the Riddler and I had a car going for the Riddler. And, uh, uh I won. His car was prettier. Uh, <laughs> Troy was a nice loser. <laughs> and that's we, the, yeah. that was probably the last time for Troy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We ended up uh, going uh, uh, on a hard rod power tour in, you know, in uh, June after the, the Detroit Autorama. And we were able to visit one another every night at, at the motel parking lot. And, 
and uh, we worked a deal out uh, uh, on the way cross country to build the the first uh, car that I really consider big would be a, a 54 Plymouth that, that Troy built me, which Chip Foose has helped, and uh, it uh, I, it was really the cutting edge of the cars back then that that called the sniper. And uh, Troy was able to pull off what I wanted to pull off. And uh, Chip had, had designed the thing, you know, years in advance. And um, Bobby Walden, uh, we employed him to, to do a lot of the sheet metal work. Uh, Troy was working out of a one-car garage. That his dad owned a truck repair shop, and Troy was working out of one room there when he built that car. And uh, I now set off a, a long chain of cars from Troy and friendship with him and his father. Now his, his father ended up being more like a brother to me than than uh, I never had a brother, but he ended up being like a brother to me. The, uh, some of the builders like Donnie, I never met his father. I never met uh, Dave's father, uh, but uh, Dave was a, a computer guy that uh, had never built a car for a customer. He, he built me uh, the first car he ever built in his backyard. Uh, he went full-time building cars while he was building a car for me. Donnie went full-time building cars when he was building a car for me. Uh, Troy was a full-time builder, but uh, he, uh, uh, he was very basic back then. He did most of the work, but I like to dealing with a builder like that, that that knows how to do the work. I don't ask if they do all the, uh, the work on it, but I like to see them dirty at the end of the day <laughs> if you're building a car. Yeah, it's a long list. I hope everybody's listening to how many people and the big names that he just talked about through that. Um, it's wild. Uh, you... Before we get off into the land speed racing on the show car side of things, you named some, some pretty iconic cars and pretty iconic builders, but it doesn't seem like you get very nostalgic about the cars once they're built and they've done their job. Um, you've sold, I mean, countless cars, um, is, is it more about the process and the fun creating it and then doing it, what it needs to do for that one year or going to the show? than it is about the car itself. We've talked about this before with other customers, you know, that they enjoy the process so much and then they're ready to do the next one. Talk about that, about why you sell some cars, why you don't sell others and, you know, what you don't keep well, everything. <laughs> the bottom line is it doesn't matter what it is. It's still a car and a car uh, should be built to enjoy. Uh, I'm, as much on the, the wagon train of anybody winning awards. I, I've never placed a lot of emphasis on awards. Most of the awards I've ever won is uh, I've gotten into because of the builder. It was their dream to, to, to win the Riddler or the Grand National Roadster Show. And uh, it basically makes their life as far as from a business standpoint to, to have uh, the kind of uh, uh, hardware that you that comes with winning car shows but 
I've always looked at a car as a car. I, you know, I could take it or leave it. I never look at anything and, and, and try to pick out the bad parts of the car. I look at one and try to pick out the good parts. And uh, it, it, part of it is the competitiveness. And you, you, you know, I, I love building. I love uh, uh, seeing something started and completed to the end. And, uh, you know, you can't, you know, a car is going to get old. It doesn't matter how many trophies it's won. And uh, I, uh, I, I just have never gotten emotionally attached to anything that I've built. Uh, I've got a couple of cars that, that I built back when I was doing a lot of the work on them. And uh, I've got a couple of cars like the ones y'all built me that I'm, I'm a little bit attached to, but uh they uh it, it, it's a car you know it, it's, it's it's not life and death you know these you know cars you see at car shows with stanchions around them and don't touch you know paint you know I, i've never been that kind of person you know I've, anything i've ever built i've built it for you know for people to look at and enjoy and uh i don't i just don't get you know emotionally attached to to a piece of metal like that because it don't matter how great it is somebody else is going to build one better <laughs> <laughs> do you feel the same way about those john deers and that other building up on the hill <laughs> i like the john deers i, I got <laughs> i have one john deer all die <laughs> <laughs> it's funny how that <laughs> yeah <laughs> well buying a john deere tractor back uh, when I was plowing my grandmother's garden with a mule, was, you know, that was a dream of mine that I finally was able to make come true. And, and you don't have to put a lot of money in a John Deere tractor. It really ain't worth selling. <laughs> but uh, uh, there's some that are, but I never built real high-dollar tractors. The only tractors I ever built was one that I saw when I was growing up that my neighbors owned. Uh, I was in a museum the other day uh, out in Texas that uh, I saw a 48 Ford a Ferguson tractor like I drove when I was growing up on a farm. I, that's the only one I've ever seen that looked like the one that I learned to drive a tractor on. But uh, the the cars, I don't know. You know I, I guess I, I don't. I, I sell them because they, they're setting and not getting driven and uh, somebody, you know, the biggest majority of the people that that would buy a car from me are the ones that are buying the reputation of it or uh, buying it to resale. And uh, I've always been you know, fairly realistic in how much money you got to put into a car to sell it and fairly realistic for what it'll bring when you get ready to sell it. So, you know, I, I don't get a car that you, you know, put a price on it that ain't nobody going to pay because they just don't, you know, you don't resell them for what you build them, you know, and, and I've always placed a lot of uh, value in how much fun you have in a vehicle like that. And, you know, it's worth something to you just from a fun factor. Everything is not dollars and cents in a car. But uh, I 
I just, I don't get attached to them. I, I like building them. I like working with a, the kid that I've worked with. Uh, I, uh, I like the people that you meet when you, you go to a car event, but, uh, you know, I've built cars for specific awards, but 99% of the time that's been because the builder wanted to do that, not me. And, uh, I don't know from where I came from and where I've ended up. I, I've got enough satisfaction out of life. I don't need a, you know, another trophy to uh, to prove how great you are. But if you if you're gonna go for the trophy, you want to win the trophy, right? And you're the greatest. We've talked about this before. That's the greatest quote. The I've greatest heard in my life quote <laughs> that we've ever heard was, "I don't." And I'll never forget that. Yeah. That, I don't, that might be on my tombstone. When I, I really think it when is. you bury me, I might and have George Poteet under it. I don't. I don't care anything about winning, but I hate to lose. I, <laughs> I hate to lose. <laughs> <laughs> winning is not near as important as not losing. Yeah. <laughs> if you're going to do something, you do it 100 percent to succeed in it, and uh, once you do that, you you put it aside and go to the next goal. And, uh, they, uh, it's, it's worked out pretty well for me in business and my private life and, and, uh, and the, the hobby that I've chosen to participate in all my life. And, uh, uh, I've, I've been competitive all my life, you know, high school, college, all the way through my life. And, uh, right now down to, Getting up at four every morning, you know, fifty years going to work. You want to win. Uh, you uh, you don't want to lose what you you've got. But uh, after you win an award, the next morning you get up, it, it's over with. You know, you you move on to the the next thing you're doing or the uh, next dream that you have. And uh, some of the uh, I guess best looking cars I've ever built that have been dreamed up on the way home from a car show. You know, me driving back by myself, just thinking about things. And uh, you you end up uh, doing some things in your life to to, uh, uh, go with a norm. Uh, Things like Great Baskerville and his 32 Roadster. I mean, you you always dream about a car like that, and every time you see it, you you know you say, "I want to build one of those one of these days." And uh, uh, a guy like Gray that, that drove his car, you say, "I want to I want to grow up to be like him." And you know, a guy like him, I don't know that he ever won an award with a car. I know one time they wouldn't let him in the Grand and uh, L.A. Roadster show in his car because it had some primer paint on it, <laughs> but. Uh, it's, uh, you know, you have different uh, takes on what to do. And I've never uh, really tried to outspend anybody on a car. Uh, I have outspent some people on a car. <laughs> I, I'll acknowledge that. <laughs> but that, that was never my goal. And uh, I, I don't buy the, the, uh, the position that, if you spend enough money on it, you can you can do it. Uh, I don't always get it. You got to work with a group of people like y'all, like Troy, that 
that that had the same goals that you have, and and uh, you gotta you gotta work with people that that want to do the things that that you're wanting to do. You know, I don't want to have a car built in a shop where the guy hates coming to work every day. And uh, it's uh, it's really not about trophies. It's not about the oohs and the ahs and the magazines. And uh, it, it's about a lot of self-satisfaction and uh, the competitiveness in you and, and not wanting to lose. You know, it, it's just not about winning. It's about not losing. Well, transitioning a little bit uh, right off of that where did the land speed uh bonneville salt flats hey we're gonna go racing where what was the first car and uh you mentioned reading in hot rod magazine about it um so when did you get to that point where you said i'm gonna go salt flats racing well in 65 66 back when craig breedlow was running it Spirit of America, uh, Mickey Thompson was running uh, a Challenger, a Streamliner. Well, uh, Hot Rod covered Bonneville every year, uh, big time back then. And uh, the, uh, of course, the, the biggest car that you wanted, that you could dream of having back then, would have been some sort of a roadster. And uh, that was everybody's dream to drive a 32 Ford down the salt. At, you know, 150 miles an hour. And uh, I never could afford to, to build a car like that till, oh, I guess, well, I was over 30 years old. And uh, at that point, I I got I got to go out there with a, a buddy of mine that's in the street rod club that I'm here. He, he runs a uh, 30 Roadster with a flathead in it. And uh, uh, he set a record with that car out there at about 150 miles an hour, and I was just you know, struck with it and, and wanted to do it. I went as a spectator uh, four years, and then we were going on a, a cross-country tour with with the Rod and Custom magazine, and Dave and I were out there, and uh, and the 32 Roaster that he built me, I was driving around on the salt like. You know, this salt ain't gonna hurt this car, but it did. But <laughs> I decided I, I wanted to race. So I bought a uh, 26 model Roadster with a flathead in it and a C4 out there in the starting line, had a parcel sign on it. Knew nothing about the classes, knew nothing about the uh, uh, rules and regulations that you had to go by, but I joined. Uh, SETA and uh, got one of the rule books and uh, I ran that little old car for uh, four years with that flathead C4. I never got it to 120 miles an hour. <laughs> <laughs> but 118 was the most I could ever get out of it. But uh, I, you know, the first thing you do out there is you, you want to see the salt. Uh, everybody ought to see the salt you know, at least once in their life, if they care anything about a car and history, you know, of, of racing on a car. And uh, uh, once you see it, you, you you think you'd like to do it. So, you know, one of the biggest thrills you have then is just buckling yourself in and seeing the, the race course on the other end as a participant. 
And well, then you get to thinking about uh, you want to go fast. Well, everybody's dream, you know, back even now, really, is to go 200 miles an hour. So, you know, then you, after you get a car and, and, and make a year or two racing in it, you, you know, I'd like to have a car go 200 miles an hour. Uh, I bought a 32 Roadster that uh, would barely do 200. And, you know, the problem with it is I was running on a class that uh, 216 was a record. And, you know, you realize, you know, I, after two years of that, I ain't going to get this car fast enough. And, and then I built a 32 Roadster that uh, I was running to like a 230 record. And uh, I got that car up to 118 one time. And I had a good tailwind and I made made my mind up. I ain't going to get that 230 record in this car. <laughs> so uh, while I was in line out there with, with that 32 that I bought, uh, Ron Main approached me with, you know, you need to drive a streamliner. And I'm thinking, man, I ain't getting in that car. Look at it. <laughs> I can't drive that thing. But uh, he convinced me that it was easy to drive. And uh, he had had run a little Chevrolet four-cylinder Ecotec motor in it and uh, kind of went broke doing it. And uh, we made a deal for me to provide the engine and uh, uh, part of the expenses and he'd own the car and I'd drive it. And uh, that's the reason, you know, this car here behind me, it's got Poteet and Main on it. You know, I promised Ron when I end up buying the outfit from him, the, the operation from it, I'd always leave, leave his name on the car as long as I ran it. And uh, I honored that, that promise, and it, it's still sitting back here with his name on it. But uh, I, I was very, very fortunate, you know, to be smart enough <laughs> to not try to build a big project fast car right out of the block you know I, I was content with taking that 120 mile hour roadster and and playing with it and having fun and never got disgruntled with with a car never got disgruntled with you know any of the rules or anything that that you have to follow out there all i i got disgruntled with is i ain't ever gonna get as fast as i want to go in this car <laughs> so uh, I went through a succession of cars like that, got two 32 Roadsters and um, the uh, 26 model modified Roadster. And uh, I was, Troy and I had, had built that Sniper and uh, we were at some grand opening up there at his shop with a, you know, the dang car cover coming off of it and a balloon and all that crap falling out of the ceiling. <laughs> Tom Gale, had, who worked for Chrysler at that time, had, uh, came up to Troy and I and, uh, talking about uh, building a car for, for racing. He didn't specifically say Bonneville, but uh, somehow we worked out a deal. Uh, Mopar had worked out a deal with me and Troy on uh, uh, the sniper that when we built it, uh, they donated a a, a new Viper car back the second year that they'd been building those things. One of the employees had run into a Wendy's drive-through with it, and, and they ended up 
donating that car to us, you know, for us to take anything off of it that we wanted. But we had to bring the car back when we, we got through taking the parts off of it. It was never a licensed legal car, so they had to crush it legally. But Troy, Troy and I, when we got through, we took it back to them, the roof and two quarter panels. <laughs> <laughs> The UPS it to him. But in building that car and, and meeting Dave, uh, Gail, he, uh, uh, we worked out a deal that uh, uh, Mopar had some knowledge back then that really nobody else had and didn't really realize they had it. They had a four-cylinder uh, block that was running in uh, USAC midget cars. Uh, four-cylinder aluminum block, little car, but it would take one Hemi head. <laughs> That's all it, you know, it bolt right onto it, the Hemi head, 426 Hemi, one head would. <laughs> so we, uh, he worked out a deal for uh, them to help us out uh, with that car a little bit with the engine on it. And uh, uh, we got a, you know, Plymouth engine to go on a car, what we're going to do. Uh, the same guy I went to Baltimore with back uh, years ago had a 68 Barracuda sitting in his, his garage that his, his wife had bought new that they had parked years ago. And uh, I said, you know, Barracuda was a, looked like a very aerodynamic car and, and it, it ought to work. So uh, we worked out the deal with Chrysler. We worked out the deal with, with uh, Paul Cosma. <laughs> for him to donate that Barracuda to the project. And uh, I took it up for Troy and uh, uh, said, this is this is what I want to run. You know, I want to get a 200 mile an hour club. And uh, Troy uh, uh, took the challenge. He'd never, never even been to Baltimore. Uh, actually, you know, 68. Plymouth Barracuda looked like. <laughs> Troy, Troy's had some funny things with me. <laughs> but uh, I took that Plymouth up there and I really didn't give him a lot of, of guidance on what I wanted to do, the class I wanted to run. All I wanted to know is I want to go 200, I want to get a 200 record. I, I didn't want to drive 200. I'd already been there in my roadster. I wanted a 200 record. You know, with a 200 record, you get your name in a book for the rest of your life, and you get a red cap to wear, you know, in the <laughs> casket that you're buried in. <laughs> but Troy, Troy, Bill, I went back up there, you know, six months later, and he built the god awfulest looking comp coupe that's ever been built at that time. And uh, a comp coupe car like he built me, you know, you're, you're I have the, the flexibility to, to do anything you want to do the front end of the car. You know, you, you can run a wing on the back. You, you know, you have to chop it. it it's got rules like that. But he read the rule book, you know, in, in, in a way that he built that 68 Barracuda back then that was, um, it was cutting edge. I mean, it is today. We still run it today. But uh, he, uh, uh, we, we took that thing up to Montfort and put it in their wind tunnel. And uh, the way he built it, it had less drag on it than a new Corvette did. 
And uh, it was just unbelievable at, at the numbers that they got out of it. So we spent eight hours up there one night. We had to go in after midnight. Or we had to slip in there. <laughs> but when you go in and their uh, development center up there, you have to turn your cell phones into them. You can't do nothing but walk in a straight line and not look side to side or nothing. You know, you walk down the hallway there. There's NASCAR sitting there. There's NAS trucks sitting there. There's dragsters sitting there. But uh, Troy was able to build that car, and after the wind tunnel, make a few adjustments to it. That uh, we went to Bonneville running in, in an L class with a, a turbocharged four-cylinder engine, which you know the limit there is 180, 82 cubic inches, and we were running 180 cubic inches of turbocharged uh, Mopar with an aluminum block. Was originally designed for midget racing, and with that 426 Hemi head, it, it looked awesome. <laughs> but we'd run into a 236 record, and my shakedown run, we went 255. <laughs> wow, that's moving. <laughs> SEDA wasn't happy with us, <laughs> but damn, we uh, we went on and uh. I've run that car. I, I was running it when Ron talked me into building a four-cylinder. So I ended up out there that year in, in two cars. I had the, the Barracuda uh, that I'd run, and I'd go back to the start line and get in the streamliner. And um, uh, running the streamliner, I, I was running a little 122 cubic inch Ecotech motor out of a HHR in it that, that Chevrolet had been racing out there. <laughs> Ron convinced me that, you know, I could get in a two club with it. So uh, I was running both of them out there that, that first year. And uh, I was able that year to set a, a 326 record in that 122 cubic inch class. It's still running the Elf, Elf Blown Streamliner class, which I still got the record on the books out there for that class. But uh, we ran... Uh, uh, three. We ended up with a 326 record. I ended up with a 255 record with the Barracuda and went to the SCTA banquet and got my three club hat and my two club hat at the same time, which is that's the way to do rare it. Rare out there. <laughs> yeah. How many? But how many people? Year, go ahead. How many? What? How many people have gotten their red cap in the Blowfish? You've put a lot of people behind the wheel of that. Well, I've let, uh, uh, there's been two other people that, that got a uh, red cap in it and two other people got a blue cap in it. Uh, we, we actually set a three record in that car, Danny Burrow did. Uh, he actually made a 315 pass of that car one time. I, I ran it 302 or something like that. I, I, I got a, uh, I, I guess the biggest record I got in that car was 297. And uh, that was with a small block engine uh, running gas. But we run it uh, uh, several different classifications, you know, five, six, seven different classes. But the biggest thing I, I guess I've done out there at Bonneville, you know, <clears throat> 32 Roadster that I built, you know, which is one that's sitting behind me here, uh, I probably had. 15 people drive that car 200 miles an hour. They never set a record with it, but uh, people like Rick Love, uh, uh, you know, the 
John up at Classic Instruments, uh, and on people that work for me in, in my shop, I would I would take them out there and let them drive the 32 roads or let them go 200 miles an hour. But I've had you know, 15 people uh, get in the uh, go 200 in that car. And then uh, a couple of years ago, I, I sold it to a guy out there who was wanting a car for his grandson. I sold it to him for $5 with the understanding that when his grandson outgrew it, I get it back for $5, which I did. And I still have his $5 in my pocket. I never paid him. <laughs> <laughs> there he is. He, he died on us, but uh, uh, I repaid him a little bit. I, you know, I, I well, hate to admit this, but I did have his ashes in one of my parachutes that was over 400 miles an hour past it that I spread out there, which ain't really supposed to be no <laughs> But wow. uh the uh the uh thirty-two roadster is the one that uh, loaned out many times to different people uh, either to go out there with us and race or to uh just loan it to them for years to race out there. And uh, the uh streamliner that, that I bought from Ron uh we ended up uh, running, I never ran anything but a small block in that car, but uh, I ended up making a 462 pass in that car with a 300 cubic inch motor in it. And uh, I crashed it out there. Uh, the uh, speedometers you know, shows, I had a camera over my shoulder looking, and the speedometer shows 370 when I got upside down in it. But uh, this is it sitting behind me here. We gathered up, or they gathered up all the pieces out there. I, I don't have anything that you could save anything, but uh, we put it back together and, and glued all the, the panels back together where they're supposed to be. And uh, it's, it, this car has been over 430 times uh, with that uh, nothing bigger than. Uh, all 378 cubic inches, I think, is the biggest engine I've ever run in that car. Uh, but uh, we've done it. You know, I've had a lot of help out there. I've had some really, really good people you know, on my team. I've had, uh, I've been fortunate with uh, working with some of the people out there with SCTA, Mike Cook running uh, uh, World Records FIA. Uh, uh, renting the place out there and running it, him taking care of it for us. But uh, the uh, I was very fortunate with that car and starting with that 122 cubic inch engine in it, I was able to learn how to drive it without being in uh, what we would consider today not a lot of danger. I mean, 300, you know, 60, 370 miles an hour is dangerous, but when I was making passes with that four-cylinder engine out there, you know, 122 cubic inches, you ain't gonna go very fast. But you know, one we were able to get it up to 356 one time, and it, it's real easy to drive. It doesn't lose traction. It goes straight. The thing is 38 feet long, and you know, all you have to do is sit in there like you're in a rocking chair and change the gear. <laughs> but it, as you as you get a little bit more ambitious and and uh, uh, we end up they convinced me that we could put a, a V8 in it and go faster. And Kenny Duttwaller does the engine for me. He he had worked on uh, 
uh, GM uh, Grand National Buick with that V6 turbocharged engine when they first came out. And uh, he was, he is really good with turbo engines. He, he still is. But uh, he convinced me he could, you know, put me in a three club with it. And uh, then after we got to running, he convinced me he could put me, we didn't have a four club back then, uh, but he convinced me we could go four miles an hour with a small block engine in it. And uh, like I say, I ran that 300 cubic inch engine up to 462 one time out there on, a, on an FIA course. But uh, Kenny has, uh, he has stayed way ahead of the curve from a technology standpoint and uh, from a uh, loyalty standpoint to me he, he never goes to bed <laughs> he thinks about it 24 hours a day and uh, he uh, he still builds my engine for me and uh, when I crashed his car uh, SCTA decertified the chassis because it, it was old and it was a pretty bad crash. They were afraid it you know, hurt the integrity of the the, the bill. But, but uh, I I got convinced by Steve Watt to build a new car. He, he told me what he could build me a new car for, and I knew real quick if we could do it for that, that I would spend the money with, that it would take to build it. But we basically built the same car that we crashed other than uh, – we made it a little bit wider to where we could wedge a, a big block down in, in the frame rail and get the headers and everything, the turbocharger to clear the, the chassis. But um, we run a, a LS motor in it out there. We run the fastest LS motor to ever run out there. I run the fastest uh, small block to ever run out there. I run the fastest four cylinder to ever run out there. I run the fastest big block that's ever been run out there. I run the fastest streamliner that's ever been run out there. I got the biggest record that's ever been set out there on, on a five-mile course and with well, a piston-driven car. that uh, They used to run jet cars out there, which they don't do that anymore. But uh, uh, we uh, end up setting a record a couple of years ago, uh, 470 miles an hour. Uh, which at the time I was running on a 417 record. I was running on a record on a double A blown fuel streamliner that had two uh, blown Hemi's in it that uh, Tom Berkland had said it uh, four or five years before me at an FIA meet. But we were running on a, a 417 record and, and we bumped it up to 470 out there on one Thursday morning. That's a good jump. But <laughs> I, I sat in that thing on one pass out there that week at 481. And uh, uh, the, the issue that, that we have with it is we built the same car that we're running the four-cylinder. So we got a two-wheel drive car, which, you know, you can't go that fast with a two-wheel drive car. You got to have all-wheel drive. You could go really fast in a car out there. That's what everybody tells me. <laughs> but, oh. Uh, uh, we didn't build it to go 500, but we're real close to getting there. And uh, I don't know if we'll ever get there or not. I don't know if I will. I'm, I'm about worn out. I'm old. I'm 75 years old. <laughs> I don't know how many more passes I got in me out there. But uh, 
it it you know the the racing started with with Hot Rod Magazine and and uh, Craig Breedlove running that Spirit of America out there off the end of the course end of the lake out there and him sitting on the tail waiting on uh, uh, the rescue team to come pick him up and all you could see is the tail of the car sticking out of the water and the Spirit of America and uh, hearing his quote. You know, if Petrelli didn't get a good time on that, I'm going to kill him and kill him. <laughs> and Petrelli was the guy that was in charge. Dave Petrelli's father was actually doing it, but he was in charge of the FIA meet out there when he did it. But uh, I've had since then, uh, I've had Craig in my pits over a couple of years, and uh, he's still going. He's still dreaming about building race cars. He's still about dreaming about going to, over the 750 land speed record with a, a jet car, but you know, Craig's like me, he's a little too old to be thinking about doing that. But uh, it started with him crashing the Spirit of America and it being in the the uh, picture Hot Rod magazine back in 63, 64. And, uh, you know, it, my racing career started with watching Paul run that flathead roadster out there and said i'd like to do that and uh you know again i was i was wise enough to, to buy a car instead of building one and 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 building you know buying what i could afford to run and still have fun with it and what i could physically handled because I'd never driven a car, you know, a race car like that other than on a drag strip going 88 miles an hour on a 65 Mustang or something. But uh, you know, to run Bonneville, you know, the biggest mistake you, you, you make is going big too early. You know, you need to learn how, how to have fun out there before you, you get out there and, and, and start really, really racing and competing for trophies that, that people you know work they work the whole life to get a trophy out there and, and you can't just say well i'm gonna break that record you know it ain't that easy and uh, i see people today that just spend you know buku's of money on a car you know and their goal is you know to you know, like run 300 miles an hour on a 256 record and you just have to say Paul, that ain't going to happen. You know, you need to go for the 256 record before we think about going 300. <laughs> and uh, I've been guilty a little bit of being a bad influence on some of the people that do that. <laughs> you know, I, I know people that, that, that built cars that made up their mind they were going to go faster than us. But the problem with it is, you know, they didn't, didn't do the homework to do it. And uh, most people... Uh, today uh, that has never been out there a lot picked the wrong class car to build you know they uh, most everybody picks what they like to uh, dream about owning and having like me I wanted a 32 roaster the worst car you can build to run out there you know don't ever build a 32 roaster to run out there and and it's not because it's a bad car because the records are so high you know that it, it takes you 50 years to learn how to drive a car like that that fast and they you know it's one old boy out there run a 32 roaster 302 miles an hour and you know to 
I couldn't drive a 32 road for 302 miles an hour. And I'm over 400 close to 60 times. I wouldn't get up 32 Ford and try to drive it 300 <laughs> miles an hour. <laughs> and there's people that'll say, well, I'm going to go faster than that. And I'm thinking, more good luck on that. <laughs> but uh, I was fortunate enough to drive uh, what's considered today low horsepower cars that are easy to drive. And when you're driving, you know, a four-cylinder engine with all oh, 800 horsepower out there, it's it's like riding a motor scooter or an electric scooter down the street. You know, in a city, it, it's not hard. And uh, you you graduate to, to bigger things and faster things, and uh, uh, it gets harder. The harder, you know, you have different plateaus you reach out there. You know, going 300, when I hit 300, it really wasn't that hard. And I'm thinking, Ron was right. I could drive this car. <laughs> I'd say after I'd made a 326 pass in it. But the, you've got, you know, you, you get up to 375, and then you, you try and try and try to get 400, and you just can't hardly do it. You're making 380 passes, 387. You just can't get to 400. And then once you, you, you get experience and, and and your crew gets experience and you know you figure out what you can and can't do with horsepower and traction and uh, aerodynamics uh you finally reach the 400 uh, the first 400 record i ever had out there was 402 and uh they uh, sceta formed a 400 club out there uh, right after I'd made that 402 record, and I'm sitting there with a, the smallest 400 record on on the books out there, and of course it was a man was a D class, which is a very small engine out there. But I was ashamed to wear the the black cap of those guys that had 415, you know, 420 records. I I was ashamed to wear the black cap with them. Uh, I never wore a 404 record black cap. But uh, or you, you get enough passes on you and you know what you can do and can't do. And, and even with the, uh, the 300 cubic inch engine that I set that 402 record with, 404 record, uh, I've got the world's fastest piston-driven cars, an uh, international record, 439 with it. And uh, I don't know. I don't know that anybody will ever break that record. First, you, you've got to have a longer course than we have out there at SETA meet. And the salt has shrunk so much. I don't think we can get a, an 11-mile course out there. And it's harder to get because you have to make two passes and you have to turn around in one hour and go over the same real estate in opposite directions in one hour. And it, it's really hard to do. But uh, the 439 record with that 300 cubic inch engine is is probably the biggest record I've got out there, even though I got a 470 record out there. But the 439 record is, is, is a lot harder to get than that 470 record is. But uh, I've been so far, after about 25 years of doing this, I, <clears throat> I've never had a record broken out there in the streamliner class that we've set. I, I got the Double A, the A, the B, the C, the D, uh, the L. That's the whole alphabet. Sounds like <laughs> you're getting pretty good I at call, not losing. I call it the alphabet car. 
<laughs> What's the uh, the biggest limiting factor out there to you know breaking those records? Is it horsepower? Is it traction? Is it aerodynamics? Is it length of the course? The the biggest problem is is traction, and uh, it's a it's a five mile drag race, and you can you know anybody like Kenny can create horsepower. You know, we've got a big block engine now. We we can make 3,800 horsepower with it if you turn the boost up. But you can't do that because the tires won't hold out there. You're running on, you know, uh, what, what's equivalent to concrete that's got a loose mix on top of it. And you're running land speed racing tires, which doesn't have about three inches of contact on the surface of the salt. Less than that when you're going down, down the course doing... 400 miles an hour, your tires grow like the top fuel dragster cars do, and you end up just a very small uh, area in the center of the tire that's touching the salt. But the, the traction is, is the limiting factor with us right now. And part of the problem is what I talked about a while ago a little bit. I got a two-wheel drive car. And of course, when I was building it, Steve told me what he could build it for. And you know, I, I have to be a, a little bit realistic about how much money I'm going to spend on a project. I, I said, I can't afford that. And people that, that run out there, and, and uh, I would say the same thing today to somebody, why don't you build a, a four-wheel drive car? And my answer to that is, I don't want to spend $3 million on a race car. You know, if, if I could spend $3 million on a race car, we could go 500, but it would have to be an all-wheel drive car. And and the reason for that is traction. Another big, big factor, guys, on, on the traction is what God does to it out there in the wintertime. You know, we go out there sometimes, and it's like driving on an expressway. And then sometimes, like the year that I crashed, it's wet. And uh, it, it's real, real slippery, and you can't get traction regardless of what you do. But uh, we've had a couple of years out there that that the course was just absolutely perfect, like running on a you know a concrete expressway. And then I've run out there on some courses that I look back now and said I shouldn't have been out there. I shouldn't have been running that car out there. Uh, the year I crashed, the course was just absolutely unbelievably bad. And a year before last, it was really good. But the year that I, I made the 480 pass out there, that the salt wasn't real good. And I don't really know why we went that fast. We wasn't expecting to go that fast. And, and, and then to turn around the next day and go faster was a bigger challenge. <laughs> but uh, the biggest tra uh, problem is traction. It ain't horsepower. These, these guys today with computers and and fuel and and uh, technology that we use, uh, you make horsepower. But uh, driving a, a car like that I have out there, a, a streamliner, uh, the best range of horsepower is from 1,824 horses. And I love driving a car that's got 1,850, 1,900 horses. I don't have near as much fun in a car with 3,000 horsepower because you have a lot of issues, <laughs> issues with going straight. But uh, with a little 2,000 horsepower engine, you just kind of sit there and wait for the five mile marker and, and uh, you know, going 
400 miles an hour, you can see the mile marker pretty clearly. At, you know, at 470, I have a little problem picking up a, you know, an orange flag with a number on it. So you have to be real, real careful about how far you go and when you pull your parachutes and things. And uh, last couple of years with uh, the speeds that we're going, we've had some parachute failures. I went off the end of the course up there uh, last year, year before last. It rained us out last year. But uh, the, the best racing out there and the most fun racing out there is anywhere from 1,800 to 2,200 horsepower. What's the highest mile an hour where you still are breaking traction at? How many? What? Like, are you losing traction? Are you spinning the tires at 250 plus mile an hour? Like when you're trying oh, yeah. for a fast what? pass? It spans the whole five miles when you're going a uh, uh, three to five mile marker. You know, if you you've got a decent run, I'm spinning the tires. The year I crashed going 370, I spun out in six gear. I was in six gear going 370, and it just lost traction and spun sideways like you do on a slick highway. But uh, uh, wow. you spin the tires, and and with the uh, the tires that we have the, the the uh, rubber is real thin, and you spin down to the cords, you know, pretty quickly. So, you know, every pass I make, I ruin two rear tires. And uh, we uh, uh, we have tire issues out there. Uh, Goodyear's ended up uh, on in Mickey Thompson, so they're building a. Uh, they're not going to build a 500 mile an hour land speed tire. They tell me they don't want liability of it. Uh, I ended up buying uh, 28 tires that was in inventory for the Mickey Thompson 31 inch tires that we run just because you couldn't buy them anymore. <laughs> but uh, I ruined two tires every pass we make out there, and it's because of, of spinning. And, you know, you run 3,000 horsepower on a surface like we're running, and uh, if it's got any moisture at all in it, it's, it's just horrible. What's, uh, what was scarier, 481 on the tires or 370 in the air? Well, it was harder with the, the 480 pass because the course was bad and I was having to drive real hard. Uh, the 370 pass, we weren't out there competing. We were out there just testing an LS engine. And uh, I wasn't under a lot of stress as far as, you know, I got to set this record. Uh, I, it really didn't affect me much other than I was uh, stupid for being there and, and with the course as wet as it was. Uh, but we weren't trying to go 500 miles an hour. We were trying to see how you know, our technology that we'd put into the car that year was working. And it was an FIA meet. There wasn't but two cars out there running. So the 370 pass wasn't as, as bad as the 480 pass. The 480 pass, uh, the course wasn't good. It was really rough. And uh, I had to drive the car from uh, side to side. I'm running on a 30 mile wide uh, racetrack. And uh, when you run up and down the salt like that, car going down, it will end up breaking breaking the salt up and creating salt spots in the salt or a pothole somewhere. 
Don't show you, you get on the start line, you've got the starter telling you, you know, you got a bump down there at the three and a quarter mile marker. You need to be on the right hand side of the track, you know, and then you need to move over to the left hand side for the next mile and a quarter, and then you got to move over to the right hand side. So, you know, when you're going 450 miles an hour, you, it, it's hard to think about that, and it, it's hard to steer the car because uh, it first it's going so fast the front end gets light on it so you don't have a lot of traction with your front tires when you turn them uh they're, they're just you know there's not any, that much downforce on them going that fast so when you turn the steering wheel you don't really get uh, a quick reaction like you do dodging a pothole or a, a dead coon on the highway or something uh you, you have to anticipate where you're going to go and when you see that you're moving a little bit too far to one side of the course, you have to anticipate pretty quick because uh, we're going a quarter of a mile in two seconds. <laughs> you know, I, I'm doing less than eight seconds in a mile. So, you know, you got quarter mile markers out there and uh, uh, you're looking at a, a quarter mile marker and you see the next one coming up. It's going to be there in two seconds. If you want to move to the left a little bit there, you got to do it right then. And uh, the, the 480 pass was, was a lot harder than the, the 370 crash. And at the 370 crash, it never, I, it never really bothered me other than, you know, when I went sideways, I tried to pull the parachute to get it back straight and my canopy flew off. And at that point I knew that I was sideways and the body was coming off the frame. And uh, I basically, you know, said, I got to, keep my hands in the, the, the cockpit. You know, you got arm restraints on and everything, but, but you still, you know, don't want your arms flinging around outside the, the cage or anything. So I basically just grabbed the steering wheel and sat there until it stopped rolling. And uh, I, I unhooked the seat belt. I, I was uh, uh, laying on the side, I unhooked the seat, took the steering wheel off the boat, unhooked the seat belt, fell to the <clears> ground. <throat> And the funniest thing I think it's ever I've ever heard is <laughs> by that time my recovery truck had shown up and got there. And this one old boy is with us. He don't go out there with us every year. And the first thing he said, he's alive. <laughs> <laughs> that made you feel good. <laughs> <laughs> but he was so excited that I was alive. I'm thinking. It wasn't that bad. <laughs> how many times did it? Uh, how many times did it roll? I've heard the story from Danny, so I don't know that I believe much of it. But I don't have any idea. We didn't have. Well, I was far enough out on the course there with any videos or anything. The only videos I have is one that was inside the car with me. It rolled on both sides, you know, three or four, or five times, and then spun around and rolled on the other side. It's spinning. You know, like throwing a pencil on the floor, really, what it was like. <laughs> but uh, it it really didn't bother me. The wreck didn't. I, you know, they made me go to the hospital, and uh, I went back out there the next next day and got my stuff together and flew home the next day. But uh, I, I I didn't really have any effects of, of the race. I mean it. I fractured my back and well, broke some ribs. <laughs> I didn't get a concussion or anything, which is a no miracle. real effects then, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you it, can walk it, those it actually, off. 
and it actually broke the the driving helmet they had on it, busted it. But I uh, we didn't worry about concussions back then like we do now. But I didn't get a concussion or anything. But uh, it didn't hurt. I was sore a little bit for a couple three weeks. But uh, driving fast on a a wet course is uh, about the worst experience you can have out there. And I've driven on some courses out there that I look at it now and said that was really stupid for us to do that. But you get out there and you get into this competitive stage that, that we get into and you think, well, I can do it. You know, you 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 get it started and you get me pushed off, I'll drive it. That, that's my position when I get out there. I drive any course, you know, any speed that you make it go, I'll drive it. And uh, I've been pretty, pretty fortunate to, to go from pretty big speeds out there a lot of times and not anything really bad happened to me. And uh, I've gotten to the point though that I, I feel like I'm pressing my luck a little bit. <laughs> well, you're going pretty fast on the salt. You obviously like the speed. Any time on the pavement, do you like going fast? I mean, I know you had a pretty high horsepower 56 Chevy. Do you do you like that kind of driving when you're on the street? Or is it just yeah. the closed course? <laughs> I've never I've never had a speeding ticket. <laughs> <laughs> I've never had a speeding ticket on the street. And I I very, very seldom ever drive over the speed limit. And you know, I, I've gotten old enough. Uh, you know, gray hair, a blue tag hanging from the windshield. You know that uh, I know people make fun of me on the expressway. <laughs> I have people pass me. I'm doing 70 miles an hour. You know, and they're zipping by me doing 75 or 80, and I'm thinking, man, they must hate me. I was like, we used to call them blue tags when I was growing up. I'm just an old blue tag going down the expressway. They don't you know, know they're they don't know they're passing the the fastest man on the planet. You know? <laughs> and these kids today in town, you know, when you're on 45 mile an hour street speed limit street, you know, these kids don't want to go that fast. And, and if you're in their way. They're on your bumper. <laughs> They're about three inches off your rear bumper. So I get a lot of tailgating right now. I don't drive very fast. You got to get a sticker on the back of uh, your car. My other car does 480 miles an hour. <laughs> <laughs> well, I had a license plate one time on one of them. It said 462 MPH. <laughs> People really are just scratching their heads. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I know you haven't gotten a speeding ticket. Um, however, I do know you've got some roads on your property that are long enough. I've, I've seen some pictures and some videos of that green 56 gasser doing some, doing some pretty good pulls and some burnouts and stuff. It seems like you, uh, if, as long as it's on private roads, you have no problem with letting it, letting it eat. <laughs> Well, yeah, I've been a bad influence on two of my grandsons. <laughs> <laughs> Every time they get in a car, it's the first thing they ask, granddaddy, will it do a burnout? <laughs> but I, I'm doing them on a private drive, and I don't do it on the highway. I don't do it at traffic lights in town. It's always on a private drive like that to where you can, you know, if you have one that just barely would do a burnout, you you can sneak around back and pour a little bit of water on there and not tell them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> that's what it takes to do a burnout. But uh, you get questioned, well, what is a burnout, Granddad? Why is it called a burnout? <laughs> I don't <laughs> think that people... gasser needed any help. That that green gasser <laughs> didn't need any help doing a burnout. It would do it. A gasser, a gasser, a gasser was scared to drive. I, <laughs> I drove that car on a drag strip a time or two, and uh, I've. I, that's the only car I've ever driven. It was relatively fast on a drag strip, but uh, I wouldn't want to be a drag racer. I, I drove that car, you know, it, I ran from you know, high seven, low eights in it, and I, I ain't no way I'd drive a funny car or something like that five seconds. <laughs> <laughs> why they do it but the gasser would would definitely do a burn <laughs> uh we've kept you long enough we just got a couple little quick questions we're going to ask um what's what's the best piece of advice that you have ever received that i could give anybody well no well i'm coming to that but i want to know what the best piece of advice that you have ever gotten from anybody I don't know, probably to stay in school. <laughs> <laughs> Did you listen to that advice? When, when, I, when I was 15 years old, I had an English teacher that was pretty insistent that we keep coming to, to class when we were in high school. I mean, I, I graduated my high school with, with about uh, 15 people. And you know, I, I went to high school with one guy that made nine on his ACT test. <laughs> but, <laughs> the best advice I've probably gotten from anybody is to, you know, to, to get an education and, and, uh, it'll open some doors for you. And, uh, I, I credit a lot of that with a, uh, English teacher that, that kind of took me under her wing when I was young and impressionable and, uh, you know, Geraldine Stevens, I'll never forget her. <laughs> well, how about the advice that you would give somebody, whether it be a guy looking to start a hot rod shop or a guy just looking to be successful in business and life. What you got anything you you'd feed to those guys? Well, the, the biggest mistake I see people make that I would, would, you know, advise against is spending more money than you can afford. And, uh, I'm a firm believer in, if you can't pay for it, don't buy it. <laughs> I have, uh, I, I, I'm not a believer in our, our credit system here in America. You know, I'm not a believer in, in instant gratification, like, you know, getting in a streamliner when all I could afford was a $10,000 flathead roadster. Uh, and uh, the biggest problem we've got today with, with uh, the generation of kids that are growing up and and even my generation is uh, people aren't afraid of credit now. And uh, credit is a killer. If you owe somebody money, they own you. And uh, the, the thing that these kids, people building their first project or building their last project needs to keep it within their uh, budget. And uh, you know, if you can't afford it, set it aside for a day or two. You know, if you can't afford a million-dollar house, buy a $400,000 house and, and be happy with it. But uh, uh, I see too many people today that let credit ruin their lives. And 
Uh, it ain't got to do with a car or how much money you spend on it. It has to do with how much money you got to spend on a car. That's good. Now, when you, all your life with all the success you've had, when you get up in the morning and you know you're, you're going in to face a tough day, what do you tell yourself? How do you push? How, how have you pushed through life to get to the level that you're at? How do you get there? You, you set goals. Uh, you set incremental goals. And uh, you feel good about yourself, uh, regardless of where you are. Uh, there's no room inside any of our bodies for jealousy. Don't, so don't ever begrudge anybody for what they have or what they do. It doesn't matter whether you can afford it or not. You know, you, you, you don't have to be satisfied with what you got, but you need to be happy with what you have. And uh, whatever you have, you need to enjoy it and be happy with it and always want to have better and more. But uh, don't ever, ever settle for, you know, my favorite phrase that I hate is that will do. When you're building a car, you never get up underneath and say, well, that'll do. You know, you got to get out of the car and say, that's the best I can do there. <clears throat> and it has to do with your personal life, your business life, you know, your hobby. You know, whatever you do, you can never say that will do. It's got to be, that's the best that I can do. Solid. Yeah. That's, I mean, there's no better ending point than that right there. That's, uh, that's great. We do, we do do a thing here on the podcast, though, where I ask you what's in your pockets. And um, you've got to have at least a pocket knife in your pocket, don't you? Yeah. 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 All right. Well, George, I appreciate it. Hope to see you here soon. We haven't seen each other in a while. And uh, I, can't, I can't imagine anybody wanting to listen to me for a while. <laughs> oh, you'd be surprised, George. This was, this was There's amazing. an entire industry that'll be glued to this one. <laughs> yeah, this is this was this was something. Sometimes my grandkids think I'm pretty boring. <laughs> <laughs> They'll know one day when they get a little older. You know? <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> I thought we were going to have some Betty stories on here, or at least Betty make a little surprise appearance, but I haven't seen oh, her in a while okay. either. Well, I appreciate All it. All right. I appreciate what you guys have done for the industry and what uh, what you've done for me. And uh, I, I never, never, never hesitate recommending y'all in your shop and and uh, Jeremy, Phil, <laughs> uh, Josh. You know, y'all are right at the top of the chart with character and and uh, being genuine about everything and unpretentious. You know, you're uh, I don't care how successful you've been and y'all been pretty, pretty successful with this car deal. Uh, you don't really show it <laughs> and you, you're always the same people when I see you at, at around these events and, you know, I, I hope you are able to maintain that the rest of your life and, uh, die happy, man. Don't, don't worry about what you didn't get in life. Either. Be real, real thankful for what you were able to accomplish and you did get. I appreciate that, George. And having role models like you, it, it makes it pretty easy. Yeah. I appreciate it. Okay. See you soon. Take care, George. Thank, Thank you, you very much. Thank you.
Pretty unbelievable guy. Even like everything we have to add after this is like useless. Yeah, pretty dumb. Yeah, we should probably just end <laughs> it now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was uh, hard to even like come up with a reply to half the stuff he was saying. You're just like mind and yeah. Yeah, honestly, yeah. like throughout that whole thing, I was just a listener. Yeah. I didn't really feel the need. This wasn't a podcast. This was this was just George Poteet. And you could, yeah. I mean, we could do, I mean, we could do this again five more times. And there's so many, like everything he's saying, there's like, a, there's a nugget of advice. You're like, oh yeah. And it, it applies to everything, even beyond what we're doing. I mean, just in life. Yeah. Very, anytime George isn't a real outspoken guy. So this was quite a privilege. Yeah. But when he does talk, that's, you better listen. It's time to listen. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we, we definitely twisted his arm. He doesn't do these types of things that much. Um, and he did it as a favor to us. And I mean, good grief. There's, I mean, so much, so much gold there. It's a, such a good guy. Love you. The, the, it was quite the different, the, the 480 on the wheels was harder than the 370 in the air. That's just like, wow. Uh, he danced around that for a while. I was, I was waiting for him to get into it. Yeah. I crashed at 370. And- yeah. Uh, big thanks again to George. Remember, you can learn more about him and the Speed Demon by visiting their website at speeddemon715.com. You can also follow the Speed Demon race team on Instagram. They're posting a lot of really cool stuff, some facts and great pictures, awesome photography at Speed Demon Racing Team. All right. Do what we want to go through. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm still like I know. digesting it all. I know a lot to take in yeah we've got almost a, uh, brought a tear to my eye for a little bit there you know yeah i was getting a little choked up when yeah. it was uh yeah yeah hell, hell of a guy yeah like it's 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 a different it's a different vibe now <laughs> like i don't know how we'd go through you know and talk about we've got the, the glove box and we've got a hall of fame well let's go let's dive into the hall of fame because the hall right. of fame has got uh lot to yeah, do with George. So. Absolutely. So we're going to roll right into the Roadster Shop Hall of Fame. Um, this is a special Hall of Fame. Um, Hall of Fame is obviously talking about some of the iconic builds for whatever rhyme or reason. They could be the, you know, an award or a great customer um, uh, or just an awesome build. And this one falls right there in there with that. And uh, so this week we have perfect timing. Obviously, we have the 69 Camaro survivor series build for george the very first car we ever built for george yeah i think it was his first muscle car too wasn't it yeah i think so first first foray in from the street rods into a yeah, muscle car it was uh there's so was, much so much to that build it's <laughs> seemingly so simple people look right. at it like oh great camaro yeah at a glance it is a it's a simple car but there's a awful lot to make it that simple yeah and that was josh Josh started it off uh, writing a check that your ass had to cash. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, that's why we make a good team. This that's why we're all, you know, a good team because you know Josh went out there and uh, you know Josh is the personality, as everybody who listens to this podcast knows. And uh, you know, Josh and George, you know, built a great relationship, and uh, Josh had a discussion with George and found. Uh, the opportunity where George wanted a muscle car, wanted one quick, and 
Yeah, Josh, so Josh promised that to him. Um, yeah, we were at Good Guys Nashville, and <laughs> George, George and Josh were talking. Then he came up to me afterwards. Josh says we're going to build this car by Columbus. That and yeah, anybody, that yeah, anybody in like Hot Rod Show calendar knows the time frame from Good Guys Nashville to Good Guys Columbus. And it always comes up way quicker eight, than the five. Eight, was that eight weeks? Five weeks. Six weeks? It was a total of six, but we didn't have the car yet. Okay. So yeah, George asked me, you sure you can do it? And I, the time frame didn't register with me at first. I'm like, yeah, we can, we'll make it happen. That spec chassis is a, a bolt on. It's a pretty easy deal. There's not a lot of fabrication. When are you going to get the car to us? And then George, like, oh, we'll have it to you next week. Yeah, no problem. We could probably make that happen. And then me and Josh started talking. We're like, Fucking Columbus is in six weeks. I I will say now, um, I I I treat I I feel about you guys like I would a brother. I don't have a brother, but I treat you both like brothers. Um, I I feel that I am the third brother, um, the older, better looking one, obviously. Older, um, older for sure, right? Or distinguished, yeah. Know. Uh, right. you and I've said this before for many reasons. I feel like a brother because if you were friends, you'd be way nicer. Yes. Right. Then you <laughs> yeah. are. And so yeah. I, I have to take it as I'm, I'm like a brother, yeah. but at the same time, but just keep, yeah, just keep telling right. yourself. You're, good. Yeah. <laughs> You're in a happy place. Yeah. Let's just keep moving forward. It's a sweet spot. <laughs> uh, the, the beauty of our friendship, our relationship, uh, the working relationship, everything that we have done, um, for, you know, 12, 13 years of being friends and, and working here for the last six, whatever years. Uh, I can write checks knowing that they can be cashed. <laughs> yeah, right. and, and there's a mutual respect of knowing that I'm not going to write a check figuratively that's, that's too big to be cashed. Sure. And with that, you were, you were not at, at Nashville that year. I was not. Um, I did make a phone call, you know, in the midst of this conversation to a little preemptive, like, Hey, this is the deal. Can you know, can this be done? What, what do we have to do to get this happening? You know? So that was, I didn't fully write it without checking the balance. I at least okay. like, you know, called the bank as like, Hey, how much do I got in there before <laughs> I do this? You know, um, on that note, do you think all these compliments are like buying you further goodwill? No, or, I know that as soon as we get off, he's going to tell me how I did something stupid. And I looked in it like an idiot. Yeah. <laughs> no, we're not going there right now where this is. Yeah. When you call, I mean, I, there wasn't an ounce of doubt. No, I just simply said, hell yeah, well, we're gonna make it happen. Yeah. So we, it's, it was a challenge. We made the promise at, at, at Nashville that in six weeks when Columbus good guys came around, we would have the Camaro there. Well, it took Danny about a week to get the car to us. So now six minus one is five. So we've got five weeks once we receive smarter brother yeah. with that math. We received the car. We've got five weeks to build this car. Now, this isn't something that could ever be done again. So I don't want customers thinking about, oh, it's easy. You can do this. So there was a lot of things. We even started working prior to getting the car, obviously, to 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 make this happen. Now, you know, it th thanks to George, compliments to George. It taught us a lot about how to approach these survivor cars and how to do them efficiently and kind of change the process from just building 
the higher end kind of show car stuff because we had no choice but to essentially put the cart ahead of the horse because we had to get the chassis done. We had to powder coat the chassis. We had to get the exhaust in it, the tank in it. We had to separate the body from it and do all the things that needed to be done to the body before the body was mated to the chassis. So fortunately, we have a rock star team with a ton of technology in our engineering department and being able to work off some scans and involving the engineers. There's a lot of things that can happen while the fab guys are doing their thing. So it really like kind of paved. It wasn't the first survivor car we did, but it was the first one that kind of paved the path for doing it efficiently, quickly and finding those not necessarily shortcuts, but you know, what would you say is we're laser cutting firewalls and efficiencies, uh, efficiencies and, and laying out, you know, booster assemblies and pedal assemblies and all that. And, uh, working smarter, not harder. Exactly. It didn't hurt that this was a original 1969 Camaro original paint, 21,000 original miles on it. So beautiful that doesn't, car. That doesn't hurt <laughs> things. There was no, there was no hidden surprises. You, yep. you hear that all the time. Yep. But this, there was none. Yep. But, you know, I'll say the, when the car came in here, the first thing that we did was not sit there and like dwell on the fact that we had a, a big fish on the hook, you know, because it was no like, let's buy the baddest ass LS crate motor that we can buy because this is just supercharged. Yeah, let's do just, this. And... Right. <clears throat> you know, the, the budget's it's not that, what he wanted. No. I think it's a lot of listening to the customer. Right. Yeah. It, we learned a lot about yeah, how to listen to the customer and what he was looking for. And he wanted a car that he could drive. So believe it or not, when this thing was said and done, it's probably the cheapest car we've ever built from a budget standpoint, but just a phenomenal functioning car. And, you know, I, I think he really enjoyed, enjoyed it. I mean, he got in the car, drove it, drove it back home, drove it back Columbus. home from Columbus to Mississippi. We drove it to Columbus. Oh yeah. We drove it, was, it to Columbus. I forgot right. about that. Yeah, it was, a, I think, an instrumental kind of build in, uh, like, really kicking off the Survivor Series. And it a good-looking car. I mean, it it had the right look. You don't see a lot of vinyl tops on 69 Camaros. It's a love it, hated. It. it worked well yeah. on this car. Um, Simple dress-up on the motor, right components. Right. GM LS3 crate motor. Just a very, very functional, drivable car. And still to this day, I mean, that was, what year is this, Josh? You're the, you're the date guy. This would be 27, early 2017. Early 2017. Yeah, this car still to this day, it's, it's the one that you can just jump in and know that, like, if there's nothing else ready for the road tour, like, oh, the, the yep. 69 for Poteet, that, that car is, like, ready. I, when was the oil last changed on it? You gotta, yep. It just works and drives and drives and drives and drives and it's just an awesome it performs probably three or four notches above what you would expect it to perform that yes it's an anomaly yes (laughs) it's an anomaly (laughs) we we proved that going through uh where were we the this was uh south of the the dragon tail tail of the dragon wherever that was and whatever state that was. And yeah. we were going through that. There's, was, there are some twisties back there. Yeah. 
and I was I was trying to stay on your bumper, and I was having quite the difficult time because that car works so well. Um, we had a group of what, probably eight of us, yeah, to start, and then then there were two, two, <laughs> and it was a while. Like we ended up by the time we got through that, I mean, we pulled off the road somewhere, and I mean, we must have sat there for fifteen minutes, and that was for the rest. That of was the, the first time after just a like a long drive forget like a drag strip or race course or do anything crazy after just a long drive having fun like getting out i don't even think i shut the door we just like come screeching to a halt and you jump out like your heart is racing like there's not there's not another high like that you were just like one you're like thankful to be alive because (laughs) every turn was put because we were neither one of us were going to lift well so and that i mean that's the nice thing about like sure it's a customer's car, right? So if something bad happened, you don't have to explain it to the customer because you're going to fucking die, right? So it's Phil's just problem. like, yeah, <laughs> Phil's going to have to be like, uh, you know, we'll give, we'll issue you a credit. Like we can, we can duplicate it. <laughs> I was going to say, you guys had like your heart racing out of your chest. Imagine being in the passenger seat of the Legends truck, oh. trying to keep up with you guys. <laughs> Which, well, Matt Matt Saxon was driving for the first time, and you guys are doing 120, 130, and we're doing 95 to 100 in a four wheel drive, lifted square body on 35s. <laughs> that there's been there's some obviously tremendous amount of great cars built in in the time that's passed, but for some reason that car and Matt Saxton's car. Um, it was the stars aligned at those. It was so confidence inspiring. And it's funny because every time you push it into a corner, you said like in your, in my mind, I'm thinking one of two things is going to happen. It's going to stick or I'm going to die. <laughs> and then it sticks and you're like, okay, okay push it so a little, we'll push a it little, little bit, bit more in the next. So one. you give it a little more and you give it a little more. And every time it's just like, Oh, okay. Yeah, that car always, it just like yeah. sits down in the, turn digs in and it just yeah. hooks and goes yeah it's it's but, a, it was amazing yeah. but great car great recipe for kind of the survivor car template and uh still you know to this day it's piling miles on it go back uh one picture there for everybody who wants to know what the car weighs. oh yeah it's a, there a you pretty go. standard question the proof's in the pudding right there 3382 and look at the left front right front Ooh. exact nines that's those are pretty good corner weights right there yeah which that's actually a good like example of like using some restraint and building the car don't pile a bunch of junk in it because that car i mean it was ac it had like all your creature comforts but nothing over the top george doesn't like a stereo right no betty likes a stereo though bobby likes a stereo 30 30, 3382 with you know almost perfect corner weights Mm -hmm. full chassis ls Gas tank, air conditioning, wiring, racing, racing. <laughs> uh, but no, this this one I think it's funny because I was looking at this when I was getting it ready before. I don't know what's wrong with these pictures. Um, this is the this is the one that the before and after look absolutely identical. Like, yeah, sometimes I think that's good. I, I think it's cool. Yeah, it's not a bad thing. You know, you don't a little lower. Yeah, it's it sits right kind of stance. Yeah, a little bit larger, you know, plus two on the OD, plus three um, of the wheels, and just 
it's a come on it's a 69 camaro like what yeah so but great car that was the first one for george i i was gonna bring it up in the in the conversation but i didn't, never got the right time i think he thought we were full of shit on being able to get it done yeah 100 yeah. 100 <laughs> um it was one of those you know I'll give you Just the rope. Put your money where your mouth yeah. is. <laughs> Let's see what happens, you know. Uh, but it was it was really fun to drive it to Columbus. Um, I don't think he even thought it was going to be there when we told him we drove it there. Or you know, it'd be car show ready that right. they had rolled off the trailer and put it's it like, back I'm, on the trailer. I'm taking it home. It home. And uh, we, were, we had the privilege of doing that a bunch of times yep. since then. And uh, still are. So absolutely awesome episode. Uh, something we've been looking to looking forward to for a while. Uh, George had, could do a lot of things with his time than talk to us yeah. and he chose, which, to do it. which is why we elected to just kind of, you know, shut up. So you guys didn't <laughs> have to listen to us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There was, this was, hopefully that lives on forever. Well, we recorded it. Yes, we did. did the internet. Yeah. yeah. So forever and ever. Amen. We should have George oh, on Randy more because it, said it, like, it makes me act a little more mature. Yes, 100% agree. I'm glad we got that jingle out before that. Because there's no way I could started. do a jingle no, right I now. Couldn't. You couldn't pay me a million dollars to do a jingle. You think you like never do jingles again? Is that the kind of last thing? Oh, no, no, no. Jingles are coming back. Don't worry about that. <laughs> next, Just not for right next now. Next episode. Yeah. yeah. Sure, jingles. Uh, well, Thanks, everybody, for hanging around and listening to Oil & Whiskey. 